0: Hi, my name is Aisha Small. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth in Education podcast, where I interview interesting guests to explore developments in education, research, and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth Think and Action Tank, LKM Co. Good morning, lovely people. Well, it's morning for me. I don't know what time of day it is for you when you're listening to this. Welcome to episode 25. Of the LKM Co. Youth and Education Podcast. In this podcast episode, I am in conversation with Dr. Sam Bars, who is my colleague at LKM Co. And he is our Director of Research. This episode explores us talking around what it takes to run a research project of the type that we do at LKM Co. We talk about what Sam's role as Director of Research is. We discuss ethics in research, also the impact of the new GDPR regulations on data and research projects, we talk about why informed consent is important um, and the different stages of a typical research project. We also uh, discuss how funding affects what's research for us as an organisation but also in wider society. We discuss the sometimes thorny issue of what to do if the outcomes of your research are not quite in accordance with the agenda of those who are commissioning it. So, sit back, enjoy, uh, and hopefully learn something from this podcast. Bye! LKM co believes society should ensure all children and
1: young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood.
0: Find us at lkmco.org. Can we listen to it now? Okay, we're sitting here on a beautiful East London morning.
1: Is that right? It is.
0: It is uh, here for the LKMco Youth and Education podcast with Dr. <laughs> Dr. Sambars and uh, just Aisha Small to be honest. <laughs> just, just Aisha. Just, just Aisha. <laughs> Sitting here. How are you doing, Sam? We haven't spoken for a while. I mean, we have, but you know, we haven't we've spoken, but we've
1: not podcasted. They're two very different things, aren't they? Very yeah. different things, yeah. Yeah, no, it's been, it's been quite a while. Everything's good. I'm going off on holiday this week, okay. so there's always that sense of um, just uh, pre annual leave. Um, partly feeling very calm and partly feeling very stressed. So <laughs> tying up all the loose ends. Tying up loose ends. <laughs> attempting to. Yeah, no, but yeah, all is good. How are you?
0: Good, uh, not going on holiday, mm. um, enjoying the sunshine and uh, looking forward to, so school terms winding up for me now, uh, and so it's kind of the wind down to end of term, uh, and it's going to be my last term in schools, so that feels a bit weird. Oh, of yeah. course, right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, for, after 14 years I will no longer be teaching, um, so that feels a bit weird, but that's, other than that,
1: yeah. Mm, that must involve a fair bit of mental and physical preparation in terms of all the things you've got to do and prepare yourself for. And
0: Yeah, I think I haven't fully thought about it yet until uh, kind of a couple of colleagues like, oh, we, we hear you're leaving. And so that now, I don't think about things until they're quite close. So for yeah. me, it's still a while away, but it's definitely that. Mm. So, um, yeah, today I thought that we would talk about... Uh, Kind of a bit of a, I call it making the sausage, but how we do some of the stuff that we do. Yeah. <laughs> because um, people ask us about this kind of stuff, and also it's it's um, quite an interesting process. How do we, you have lots of reports and, and research, but how does it come
1: about? So mm. I thought that's what we talk
0: about today, and because you are Head of Research.
1: Director, Aisha. Oh, sorry, Director. It's, it's very important <laughs> that we get these titles right. I've
0: said it many times before, Aisha. <laughs> <laughs> Director of research. <laughs> I thought you'd be the person to talk to about
1: it. No, be, I'm looking forward to talking, talking through it all. Yeah, and especially
0: so somebody who is a kind of lay person who joined our organisation without uh, as much of a researchy background as some other people. Uh, and picked some stuff as I've along but also it's just interesting to find things out so yeah that's what we're talking about today kind of batting things around and uh, picking your brain and asking random questions if that's okay yeah that sounds good good Good. okay so um, first off as you correctly told me
1: your director (laughs) director of research if if there's one thing that people take away from this episode I can imagine what it might be (laughs) what does it involve? (laughs) um yeah. Well, first and foremost, it involves having a mug with my name on it and uh, director of research written on it. Yeah, that's um, important. Which I, I, well, it was a, a secret Santa gift from the team, which I, I hoped was a kind of a serious reflection of the, the respect with which they hold that title. I think it was a bit tongue in cheek. But you get to have a mug, which is uh, which is great. Always important. Um, yeah, always very important. Um, I, there are probably three or four main aspects to my role. Um, I oversee a lot of the projects that we, the research projects we conduct here, which doesn't necessarily mean that I'm that involved day to day in the nuts and bolts of them, which is some of the stuff we're going to talk about later on. Um, But I kind of drop into projects at key stages to Quality Assure, so whether we're designing the research, coming up with questions, the analysis is about to get underway, we're getting on to writing up, I'll drop in and out to make sure that from a research point of view everything looks good. Um, and also because I just learn tons, we do such a broad range of stuff that the more projects I can, I can drop in on or, or be involved in, the more I learn. Um, so there's that kind of day-to-day side of it. Um, I'm a bit of a backstop for things like research ethics and data security. So these are things that we'll talk about as well yeah. later on. But um, I'm one of the ports of calling the team to make sure that those things are done the right way and we don't expose ourselves to risk.
0: You're our data officer, aren't you? Although, has that changed now that GDPR's come in? Yeah, it has officer? to some
1: extent. Yeah, I mean, small organisations don't necessarily need um, a data protection officer. It's more about complying with the regulations themselves. So um, I'm one of the assigned people in the team to deal with things like if someone makes a subject ac- access request and wants to come to us to see their data or ask for it to be destroyed, but also I'll liaise with a lot of the clients that we work with to figure out, okay, we're going to be sharing data on this project. How are we going to share it? Is it data that we're entitled to share? What systems have we both got in place to make sure that everything is really tight before we before we get going? So I'll be responsible for making sure a lot of that stuff is okay.
0: Um, what kind of data do we tend to collect?
1: We gather loads of different kinds of data, and it depends what kind of project it is. From a, from a data protection point of view, really, you're you're primarily concerned about personal data, so data that can be used to identify people, um, and particularly sensitive data, so data that's about their political views or their religious um, perspective, um, their ethnic background. So it depends. If you're not gathering any of that sort of data, if you're gathering data that's completely anonymous or just aggregate, not about individuals, um, then that involves a very different set of considerations to if you're gathering personal data. But it will really vary. Most of the research we do will involve talking directly to individual people um, but sometimes we won't be gathering their personal data, in other cases we will. Other times we'll be sending out a survey to lots and lots of people. Um, other times again we might be reusing data that other people have already put together. So I suppose most commonly what people would call administrative data that the Department for Education might have put together on schools so that's publicly available. So
0: what like the school census data for example? Uh, um or the like, school work, workforce data? So that
1: stuff isn't publicly available. Um, I guess you would you would class that as administrative data, but yeah, that's a good point. That stuff you need to have a licence to use. But things like performance tables, so if we were doing a bit of analysis of how performance might vary in the system in a certain way, then that's the kind of data that we would use that anyone can, can get access to. And what you do with that data and how you store it and use it is you can be far, far more flexible um, and open than you could with. Data that we might, for instance, if we went and did a research project talking to young people about their use of social media um, and we were getting (coughs) real insights into their lives and gathering data that could be used to identify them, then that's a whole different kettle of fish. Um, We firstly would only gather that data if we needed to to answer the questions we wanted to answer. And also, yeah, what you do with that data? There's a whole system then around that data.
0: Well, as you're talking, actually, I remember when we did the youth homelessness project, mm. um, and we had a lot of ethics questions. We're going to come to ethics in a bit, yeah. but related to young people who had shared their personal stories with us, but also we're going to be having photographs, so mm. they were identifiable in some way and their names, yeah. um, and kind of the questions involved in terms of what they were happy sharing, mm. what was going to be in the public domain, and that, that was quite a big discussion between like, mm. me, you, Ellie, I remember, batting it around mm. what was reasonable and, and ultimately accommodated culminated in an exhibition, which is kind of a closed event, but also public, so that was yeah. So interesting. Yeah,
1: so. and I think that actually that, that report, which is full of the direct spoken accounts of really quite vulnerable young people with photos of the environments that are important to, to them and their lives... Um, is a really good example of the value of gathering that data. So it's like any discussion around risk. It's like you know, a risk assessment if you're doing a your school trip. You don't just look at risks and ever assess in isolation from the value that, that exposing yourself or other people to those risks will generate. So there's always that question when you go in to do direct field work, particularly with vulnerable people, that it's, um, it's a question of, OK, there are risks here. Um, if we don't handle this interview well or if something gets raised then this could be potentially traumatic for that person if we don't uh, handle the data properly then all kinds of people that they don't want to know this stuff will end up knowing it and that it's about them but if we can manage those risks it means that their story in the case of the homelessness project a story that's very rarely if ever told on that kind of scale reaching those sorts of audiences gets to be told Um, there's obviously a a huge value to that From my perspective, it's what makes questions around research ethics, informed consent, data protection. It moves them on from being often quite dry, you know, crucial but quite dry discussions in legal terms to actually it makes you really consider what research is all about. The only reason we have to have those quite dry legalistic discussions around data and consent is because what we're gathering is so valuable. Um, So I think, yeah... These kind of questions are really important for all kinds of reasons. So these
0: questions come up, um, so as I was, you know, as we know, my background is not as research heavy as some of the other team members. But um, I think I come at it more from a, like a documentary photographer Mm. type of of things. That's my personal stuff. And uh, fairly recently I was talking to some people I know who are photographers and there's a photography prize called the Taylor Wessing uh, Portrait Prize. I think it was Taylor Wessing. I mean, there is that prize, but I think this was specifically related to that. And the issue is that fairly recently they changed their requirements so that the photographers who enter for that prize have to have had consent forms, Mm. which wasn't previously the case. Now, that sounds like quite a basic thing, especially for people in our kind of area. But actually, there are many times when you might be taking the photograph of someone who's kind of consented and they haven't given a written release form Mm. Uh, and it was interesting because I got talking to a lot of photographers about what is consent, so technically speaking, yes, having something written down someone might want to uh, say that you can use that as consent, but for people doing long term uh, documentary work, for example you kind of have consent uh, Mm. implied, because say you're working with someone for two years (laughs) and then they see pictures of themselves popping up on your website and you're interacting with them all the time doesn't that uh, imply a much deeper level of consent than somebody who stri- signed the form mm. and they have no idea where it's going to turn up? Mm. So I think the issues of consent are really important. Yeah, and
1: they can, I think in some ways, if you were to ask, for instance, what's the difference between a social researcher, a documentary maker, a journalist, often it comes down to some of those issues of process. The fact that we're, each of those people are going out into the world to learn something new, often by talking to individuals and then... Thinking about analysing what they've just heard or, or recorded in some way, and then presenting it to the world. Those activities are common to all three, but um, I don't know much about, for instance, how, how journalists work, but they're not bound by the same kind of considerations that researchers are in terms of gaining, gaining consent and then storing the data in certain ways, and the ways in which they can share it and attribute it to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot has changed in the last few weeks since um, the GDPR came in, and what is counted as consent has become much more robust now. So that idea of implied, implied consent no longer really sits. You've got to have you know, specific identifiable consent. So if someone was to come in and say, show me the piece of paper or the email where someone gives their consent, you've got to be able to find it. Yeah, um,
0: like one thing I've started doing is um, checking with people on audio as well. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, we've been through the consent stuff, are you happy for this to be recorded? So yeah. it's also heard as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, generally speaking, people are okay. Mm. The question I wanted to ask you, for not something we spoke about before, is related to longitudinal studies. Mm. So, um, what's your view about consent? So, basically, I think what I'm getting the point of is when consent might be withdrawn. So, it's entirely possible that someone agreed at that particular time, but if you've got a longitudinal study, it could be sometimes over many years, mm. uh, and. does that need to be does consent need to be got each time you meet that person or Mm. are they giving consent for the whole time what's your view about Mm. that
1: I mean really you should um, you know I know of projects where even if it's kind of a, a three day piece of research with some people you'll check in every day to make sure that everything is still right because obviously even after even 10 minutes into an interview someone can think "Mm, this isn't what I thought it was going to be I'm actually no if you were to ask me again now if I'm happy to do this interview I'm no longer sure I think it's quite rare especially if you're a good interviewer and you've given if you've given really good information at the start that shouldn't really ever happen but so uh, certainly over the course of really long term longitudinal projects it's really important to check in as regularly as you can that people are still still happy to go In, in terms of Formally, I don't know how often you're required to demonstrate in a longitudinal project that people have you know, to document that consent, mm. but it's certainly a really important principle. It's tricky, though, because, for instance, if you're running a long-term a uh, multi-year project and you've got reports at the end of each year, then some of that data that you've been gathering may have already been reported and in the public domain, yes. at which point someone can't really... They can remove their consent to continue to take part, but they can't remove their consent for you to use and publish that data so um, yeah there's a whole different set of considerations that come in we we haven't done that many multi-year projects of that sort so um, it's you know formally it's not something I'm
0: yeah I was just about to ask actually do you have on. any projects that fall into that category in terms of like multi-year longitudinal of that type I'm not sure
1: mm, I mean I'm thinking you know, of I don't think we've ever, ever done something like a cohort study where you're coming back to the same people. Yeah. We've often done multi-year projects with the same organisation, but it's often different. involving different cohorts of people. So you're getting kind of fresh consent with, with, with new people. So that's a different, that's a different question. Can I think of the KCL, because
0: you know? that's the same organisation, but different people each time.
1: Yeah, yeah um, different research each time. Um, so yeah that's, a, yeah, that's a really important question. But it applies to a very specific set of, set of projects. Mm. Yeah, and actually, it, it highlights all the hard when you kind of when you get a um, get a dataset from one of the large national surveys, it makes you realize how much work has gone into getting so that data. From you know, that Excel spreadsheet you're looking at on your screen, is is worth so much, much. <laughs> in terms of the human effort that's gone into it from all sides. It's, it's these sorts of questions really make you aware of that.
0: Really, really do. Mm. Um, so, can you take us through the stages of a typical research project? I know we've kind of started to touch on up, up it. I mm. guess that. I guess what do I mean by typical or um, you choose what would be a typical kind of thing yeah
1: well I think I think all research projects have a pretty common set of elements underpinning them but then as you say depending on what your questions are and what, what tools you use they then go off in all kinds of directions but um, may, most most projects will involve some design stage You'll if, you're then, if you're, especially if you're gathering new primary data so you're not just getting data from someone else but you will Gathering some new data from the world. There'll be a, a stage where you're conducting, then you'll analyse whatever you've got, and then you'll report. So it's kind of like a four-part structure. But that's like really foundational, obviously, there's not much detail in there about what you do. But those are the that's the essence of any research project for me, those four things. Design, conduct, analyse and report.
0: So we're gonna kind of go into each phase a little. Mm-hmm. Um, this is gonna be a two-part Podcast, and that this bit's going to be about the kind of design phase of it. Yeah. So can you, for your mind, what's the, give an example of a fairly, you know, a project that um, was really interesting to you that you've worked on, in, say, in the last year or
1: something like that? Mm. Yeah, no, that's a good idea. Um, we've yeah. recently published um, a big report for the Department for Education, looking at cultures and practices in schools and how they support disadvantaged people's attainment. Um, that was a big project in terms of uh, it. from start to finish it was a couple of years um, and it involved going directly into 23 primary and secondary schools and spending two days in each and gathering a lot of, of data in return. And I think um, we used
0: every single member of the team on that project didn't we? I think everyone was involved everyone at some was, stage yeah. <laughs> yeah, everyone's got
1: their mark on that report which is a really wonderful thing um, so in terms of designing we, one of the most important Steps when you're at the design stage is coming up with your research questions. Um, This was a case where we knew we wanted to look. uh, Initially, it was framed in terms of the London effect, so why London schools have accelerated, um, accelerated through the pack. So the last 10 to 15 years, the performance of London schools has been a story that everyone is really interested in. Um, at,
0: a very, at a base where London schools were awful beforehand. People forget that
1: now. Yeah, um, but yeah, definitely not. Depending on how you measure it, it's sort of debated. But in general terms, yeah, London schools were behind every other region. Now they're ahead of every other region in a relatively short space of time. And that's quite a rare phenomenon in public policy to see that mm. sort of shift take place. Um, so the department continues to be really interested in that question, as are we. Um, but we're also interested in this idea of if you go into a school and you uh, you get a sense of what the cultures and practices are in that school, a really in a really broad sense, which of those are transferable? To what extent is it? Because people are always talking about sharing practice in the system, or um, weaker schools looking to stronger schools to see what they can do f- to boost their performance in particular areas, for instance. Um, but we don't often think much about what does that actually mean. Is it possible to to transfer cultures from one you know from one setting to another, or to transfer practices? Because obviously every school is unique. So we had those sorts of questions alongside and what we had to do at the design stage was say, okay, the department is interested in this question. Um, There are those wider questions around cultures and practices. How can we distill this into a really distinct set of research questions? Um, This is where you almost, you move on to conducting the research and it almost feeds back into the design. So we got cracking with a lit review, looking at what the existing research base is on cultures and practices in schools and how they support the attainment of disadvantaged pupils, that then gives you, once you've analysed that existing literature, a set of themes or hypotheses as to what those cultures and practices are. And then
0: you can use that to frame your research questions?
1: You can use it to frame your research questions so you then get more specific questions. Um, In our case, it was... The hypotheses were things like, so we identify there's a lot of literature on parental engagement, so schools that successfully engage parents, uh, mm-hmm. that has positive impact on how disadvantaged pupils in that school will go on to do. Mm-hmm. So that's a hypothesis, and you sort of get a research question off, off the back about, like, it, the, the question will vary in our case, it was, well, do we, is that true, you know, does, does parental engagement appear to be done differently? In schools in our sample that had really good attainment for disadvantaged kids compared to schools that had weaker attainment.
0: So the thing I want to ask you is um, this is a project for the Department of Education. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we have other organizations who approach us. Yeah. Uh, generally speaking, do those organizations come with research questions or they, you know, what, how do they approach? Do mm. they say we want to find out why this is the case or do mm. they say these are the things you want you to investigate? How mm. How is that process done?
1: A probably a really good example is something like an impact evaluation, because often um, an organisation will come, will come to you as a researcher and say, we want to know if we're having an impact. And that's a research question of sorts. It's a question, but it's not really it's not a, a research problem. question. I mean, you can, it's, it's totally valid, and ultimately that, that is what they want to know. Yeah. But you can't go anywhere with that question. What you need to do is spend time to develop Ideally, something like a handful of more specific research questions. So, so, what's the problem
0: with a question like that?
1: You have to ask yourself: Could I go out into the world and feasibly answer that question?
0: Sorry, I've I, I got my like math teacher head on because yes. you know there's always a bit where in the exam there's a questionnaire question, and it's something like uh, two thousand people in the school want to find out what their favourite food is. Mm. Can you design a question and some kids like? What food do you like? Mm. <laughs> You're right. like no, it has to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Not right. Multiple choice or time periods or all this kind of thing. Yeah, like a standard thing that you
1: have Exactly. To if you went out into the world or into your school with that question, what would you get back? You'd get something back. Um, but I mean, for instance, if you were to if you were to start doing interviews. Uh, with the people who'd been through a particular program or intervention just said, did it have an impact on you? You'd get something back, but what you'd find is that people would start to talk about very specific, different angles on that. And really, those are your research questions, um, things that pertain to more specific phenomena in the world. Um, With something like an organisation who wants an impact evaluation, you would look at something like their theory of change or what their outcomes or goals are. What's a theory of change? A theory of change, broadly speaking, is just a model which links together what an organisation does day to day to the short term uh, kind of the outcomes that it aims to achieve when people leave the room at the end of a session, through to its long term goals um, and aims as an organisation, um, what it wants to do in the world. Um, when you look at those, you get more specific research questions that drop out, like, oh, they want you know they're aiming to have an impact on well being. So one of the research questions you might have in that project is, um, is the organisation having an impact on an individual's well-being? If so, how, why, what are the most important factors you get other research questions feeding off that? But the, the main aim at this stage is to actually get some concrete research questions down. Because then, as we'll see, you can think, ah, OK, if that's the question, then this is what, this is the method that we're going to need to use. I was about to ask that. So right.
0: once you've selected the questions, uh, how do they impact how you then proceed or how you uh, carry out the project, for example.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, so it's really important to have specific research questions or you just don't know what it is you need to do. They're, they're, they're kind of, they, tell you, they tell you what it is you're going to need to do next, essentially. Um, so it will vary a lot. Um, we use a range of tools in our team and that's because we're responding to different kind of research questions. But I guess really broadly, it's quite simple, really. There are some questions like, Uh, What? where you just want to describe something. So what's the current state of play? What does something look like? And there are other questions like what or how, which are implying that you want to know how things are causally related, what's causing what? How does something shape another thing? And already at that level, you're getting different kind of tools, techniques coming to mind.
0: So what kind of, if you had a fairly basic what type question, Mm. um, so my first thought is that for some of those, it might be a literature issue, might well be enough for a question like that sometimes. Mm. Um, What kind of tools would come to mind for you?
1: A literature review or I mean thinking of a, a completely different hypothetical project say you wanted to do something about uh, the performance of schools in coastal areas um, a starting point might just be well what what is the difference between the performance of schools and coastal areas and you can get that without really having to lift much more than the thing you need to go into Google get the performance data and that would be your initial research question and you could use tools that were quite well that weren't very labour intensive to answer that question you'd get an initial picture of whether there were any differences there obviously you, you could stop there but that wouldn't really be a fully featured research project and you're not actually really you're not really addressing the question in a very thorough way um,
0: those you, kind of things sound to me like the uh, for me because of the projects that uh, we've worked on and so on they feel like the preliminary stages so they're the things Mm. that you do before you do the meatier parts Mm. of the project. Yeah. And if you're looking at secondary data and then that's helping you to decide what you need to do to put your more uh, resource-heavy aspects of the project to make it really focused on what you're finding out. Mm.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think that scene setting is often done with something like a literature review or a mass survey or using some form of survey data. So you're looking for... A, gem, a general picture, so an overview, you know, imagine kind of flying quite high above the field, you want to get a sense of where there might be trends and differences. If you then want to move on to questions of well, what or how or why, why do those differences exist and what is it about these areas that seems to be different, um, then you're moving into the realm of questions that, um, well, either you would want some kind of statistical analysis which could look at all the different possible causal factors, weigh them up against each other in relation to an outcome like how young people do at school and say, well these ones seem to be the most influential. Or what could be a completely different route would be to do some intensive field work in those schools, talking to pupils, staff, system leaders and get their perspectives or try to directly observe what it go, what goes on in these places to bring about different outcomes. Mm. Um, so, and that's where your expertise will come in Or well, you know, if you're more, if you're better versed in one set of techniques than another, you can explore causal questions using quite a different range of techniques. Literature reviews can answer causal questions, things like meta-analyses, which look at um, all the existing reviews, that all the existing evidence there is that it's something impacts on something else. Right. They bring it together. In a sense, kind of average out and say, okay, what can we, what do all these studies taken together say? And they can respond to causal questions.
0: So, in terms of a, a meta analysis, mm-hmm. would you say, um, a quite a big one in kind of my original field of education, uh, like Hattie's work, his stuff's a meta analysis, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, the effect size. Yeah. So, it's kind of getting together all the existing. Um, Research that he could find on the effect of particular mm. aspects of teaching practice and whether they have an impact or not, and then mm. putting that all together. Mm. Um, and I think the EEF toolkit is probably something like that as well.
1: Mm. They um, do that too, and it can be a really useful way of getting an initial, an initial sense of whether something is worth pursuing or not. For instance, mm-hmm. they rely or well, meta-analyses rely on. Bringing together evidence that's been compiled in just the same way so that things are truly comparable. So, studies have to have been conducted the same way and um, they have to have kind of adequate sample sizes and things like this. But, so, I think really it comes down to the fact that you, can, you, you specify your research questions and there's never any one particular tool that's going to be able to answer those questions. It will depend on your expertise, for instance, um, or your resources and the amount of time that you've got at your disposal. Um, But there are are different techniques to answering questions, but also entirely different schools of thought. You know, statisticians and ethnographers would go around answering the same causal question in completely different ways. But arguably, they're both coming back with an explanation as to why there might be a difference hit there in the world that we've observed. So, so
0: I know I've asked you this many times, can you remind me what an ethnographer is? <laughs> I've literally
1: asked you <laughs> this No, you've times. really hit me there. You're probably asking me several times because when I explain it, never really, it's a particularly good explanation. <laughs> um, in my mind, an ethnographer is someone who spends a lot of time with an individual or a group of individuals to get a thorough picture of how the culture, their, their culture, kind of operating as an individual, but also the things that are around them in the world, which kind of makes up their culture too, shapes um, anything that you happen to be interested in, why they behave a certain way or why things are around them.
0: Okay, so that would be more along the lines of somebody who embedded themselves in the community, maybe. Yeah. And spent a lot of time interviewing them yeah or well, that kind of an approach right
1: so I've never really truly done eth- ethnography it's it, it main one of the main features of it is it involves a lot of time spent with spent with people to truly get to know to know them and know that situation
0: okay right so now I understand because once I met an academic and she's like oh you kind of are an ethnographer and I didn't know what she was talking about but um, so you know saying about long term documentary stuff mm. so some people I've basically revisited their story every few months mm. and spent several hours with them.
1: Yeah, arguably that would. Yeah,
0: but to me, it's just like you're just chatting to some people, and taking the photographs, but she, you know, academics, you know how you guys are. <laughs>
1: no, I think you could. I think you could happily label yourself as an ethnographer. If oh, you wanted I didn't to. even know
0: I, I was, but hey, there you go. But yeah, now
1: you've got far more um, entitlement to wear that badge than I have, for okay. instance. Okay. So, so but it's also, a, that wasn't, yeah. you know, it's. I suppose my fumbled my fumbled explanation of what an ethnographer is shows that when you. Um, you can define a researcher according to either the methods that they use or the, res- the types of research question they tend to explore. And actually, those things don't don't completely align, you know. Um, so it's yeah, that's actually a really interesting question of well, How do you define how do you define a researcher based on what they do or the kind of things they're interested in?
0: So it's interesting because you know how I specifically said that I don't have a research background. I think I don't have a social science research background. What? Oh, yeah, exactly. research team um, But like one of my first ever jobs in uni during the summer was I think it was Nuffield used to give bursaries mm. um, and it was really random into uh, the rate of like liquid spread and incontinence pads mm. uh, because there was a um a market for adult incontinence pads, which is not a very sexy subject, but you know it changes people's lives. Yeah, um, and then yeah. uh, they were testing a new material, and my job was to do many, many, many studies, um, like basically doing the uh, the experiments to test this stuff on different materials and changing the rate of flow and so on and so forth. So. Yeah. Um, I think I do have a research background now, I'm thinking about it, but it's not social science, it's a different kind of thing, so it's just like data, 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 data.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, and it's, um, there are all kinds of fascinating debates about what distinguishes the social sciences from the natural sciences, and for years the social sciences were seen as, it, it was the consensus was that social science should try to emulate natural sciences in the methods and techniques. Now that's kind of been thrown out. But there is this discussion about, you know, to what extent do we have science? And then within that, are there kind of different different types of science, different kinds of research? But even as a teacher, essentially, you're, um, you're every day you're conducting action research, for instance. Yeah. So that I'm guessing you'll probably do a lesson um, and if it, if it goes great, you'll probably, there'll be some kind of reflection going on, like, oh, this, that worked particularly well, I'll probably do that again next time or I'll change this. I mean, it sounds like a corny example, but I think most teachers are almost definitely, yeah, no, yeah, definitely. researchers and that they're processing often in really a really structured way um, what they're doing and what they're seeing, feeding that into what they do and changing it next time. I mean, that's straightforwardly research. So
0: the question I want to ask you about is ethics. Um where do you feel ethics comes into play? Like, do you have an example of a project where ethics has been something that you've really had to think about? So does it come into play when you're at the research question phase or is it more at the design
1: phase? The long and short answer, well, <laughs> the long and short of it is that it comes in straight away. Um, what's interesting about ethics is that, so when you say ethics to me... Um, as part of a team, where we do lots of direct field work, you, ethics springs to mind as the set of considerations around how we're going to be interacting with people, or how we're going to store and use their data. But their ethics ultimately comes into the the very questions that you want to explore. Is it ethical to explore? This I was about actually.
0: You know, is there an, are there questions that are inherently unethical? Mm. Just wondering.
1: Mm. I think there are definitely questions that are unethical to explore if they're framed in a certain way. Um, for instance, arguably, um, there's a really interesting literature research base on how boys and girls do at school, and how that's changed over time. Um, so in the 90s, when girls began to move past boys in general, in terms of their attainment, everyone started to do research into it. There was you know this, this fear of you know, the crisis of, of masculinity, or... Or kind of poor boys um, narrative started to come out but even by even the act of researching that gap for instance implies that you think that there is something inherently puzzling or not quite right about the fact that girls might do better than boys or that the that their place has suddenly changed at least well, yeah, in this perspective there was
0: research before where people say oh why is it that boys are outperforming girls like no one cared. <laughs> it's this is like well this is the natural order mm-hmm. of things suddenly this is an issue
1: there was certainly a big uptick in the amount of research into gender stuff when that uh, when that phenomenon became apparent to people. And I would say that that in itself poses a bit of an ethical dilemma, you know. Even by choosing to explore something in the world, you're saying something about the importance of that phenomenon, and that is an ethical consideration. So it's
0: interesting that you should raise that specific example, okay. because, um, so... Uh I think I was reading a column by Laura McInerney maybe uh, like a month or so ago, mm-hmm. and then she had one of those graphs where you start to see the change in outcomes for girls versus boys. So, around the 90s basically. Okay. So, it would have been for people of roughly my age, so like mid 90s, I was at school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so I was like, okay, that's fine, but the interesting thing for me is. If you're saying that, then the people who that affected are now in their late thirties, mm. early forties, and we don't see a corresponding. Like, if that's the case, then you should, if it's a meritocracy, be seeing women outperforming men in certain areas. It takes a while for people to get through, mm. but you should see um, a disproportionate number, for example, of female board mm. executives and that kind of thing. But we're not seeing that. No. So there are a lot of uh, interesting questions around that. It's mm. kind of okay. Well, mm. if we're not seeing that, then in some ways, what's the point of education? Mm. Because girls are outperforming boys, but still, there's not mm. any filter through in the jobs market. Right. For example.
1: Definitely, and you know, our one of the reports we recently did for the Social Mobility Commission looked yeah. at differences in terms of um, ethnicity and mm. gender. And one of the main conclusions that we were we were re- you know um, really wanted to. To get out there into the world is that you can if you stop looking at outcomes at the end of school, for instance, you miss off a whole load of stuff which happens after school, where university,
0: the jobs, yeah,
1: and people can do really well at one stage and then you know almost inexplicably drop off, or their outcomes just don't really feed through into later outcomes. And so again, if you if your research questions only look at a certain phase in someone's life or a certain age group, you potentially uh, but you, you begin to frame the, de- the debate around those sorts of outcomes. So, you know, for instance, people premium will come along with specifically targets resources at a particular age range. But you might divert attention and resources away by doing your research on that particular age group away from how other groups of people don't do so well later on, um, and we might even forget that those outcomes even exist. So, mm. it's yeah, it's you know, research is an ethical minefield as soon as you as soon as you get involved. in know.
0: No, it's true. F- ethical minefield. It's yeah. more dangerous than we force Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a, a genuine minefield. Yeah. <laughs> but I think
1: people often forget this, and it's, it's like any discipline. Once, once a particular set of research questions becomes popular and lots of people are exploring them, it becomes, with every new study done in the same way, looking at the same research question it becomes more and more difficult to be the next person to come along and say, I think this is actually important. We've been talking about it in totally the wrong way. What if we look at it this way? And then all of a sudden you realise that another group is totally marginalised, for instance. And I'm
0: wondering about, you know, our research is not funded in this way, but um, so people who are in academic institutions. I'm wondering about, uh, not ethics as such, but the politics behind what gets funded. hmm. So where does the funding come from to explore particular research questions. It could well be that there are really important questions that need to be asked in society, mm. but because they aren't politically expedient or because they're slightly uncomfortable or you know, whatever, mm. then uh, they're not even we're not even giving them the money to be investigated.
1: Mm. Yeah, and that's there are really interesting questions in there about how we fund research, um, both in terms of higher education funding, but above that level, looking at the research councils, for instance they are they're centrally funded but i think they are important because they are by by having an institution that centrally oversees what kind of research is taking place in our country we're able to say there are gaps here we need to divert resources here people can come to that organisation and say like i'm i'm going to make a case for doing research here because we're not currently doing any research on this rather than it just being up to individual people, it might sound quite statist and centralised, but I think if it wasn't there, even though they're centrally funded and so probably to some extent you know, uh, shaped by what governments want to be explored, um, I think there will be even more gaps than there currently are in the research base. Um, so
0: I'd be remiss if I didn't raise the fact that mm. we are funded by the work that we get commissioned to do. Mm. So do you feel... I wonder do you feel that that compromises anything that we do or how do we manage to still be impartial or is that possible, I'm just
1: wondering. Mm. So I think it's probably most evident in something like an impact evaluation where an organisation wants to know if they're having the impact they yeah, want no, to what have. what
0: happens if we find out that there's no impact? Yeah. yeah. And how do we deal with that?
1: Yeah, and we often find that at least in particular areas organisations might not be having the impact or not yet having the impact that they want to be having or they're having different kind of impacts that they hadn't, they hadn't realised. Um, and I think that's where we, we know that as, if we want to continue to be respected as researchers, then you report that stuff. Also, if organisations want to, to continue to improve, they need to know that stuff. So there is that joint incentive to not to bury the bad news, if, you know, if that's how you want to typify it. Um, so I don't, I don't think it actually presents too much of a problem for us. Um, but there's always, that, there's always that sense of, you know, someone's come to us to research something, we, we kind of know why they want us to look at this. We also often have a hunch of, about what they want us to find. Um, and it's a bit about being bold enough to say, actually, everyone benefits if we conduct this um, in the most objective way that we can. I don't, I don't think that we generally find it much of a problem. I can imagine it being more problematic if we were linked explicitly to a political organisation or we had a campaigning arm. I think that might be something different.
0: Very much so. Sam, it'd be really interesting discussion. Gonna uh, wrap up for now and then we'll come back to part two later. Okay. Hey people, I love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Press the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. 2. Share. Share this episode with somebody who you know will find it interesting or is affected by the specific issues covered. 3. Review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also feel free to contact us via the links on the show notes. Thanks a lot. Bye.